Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So welcome to our fifth True Crime Digest. I say this every time. These are my favorite because we get to talk about the most. And I like revisiting cases. So today we're going to talk a few updates. We're going to start and end in updates. We're also going to talk about four new cases that we haven't discussed before. So actually, I lied. Five new cases. There's a lot this month. Yeah, there's a lot this month that's going on. So the first update we have is Derek Chauvin, who was convicted of the murder of George Floyd. One of the jurors was interviewed after his conviction, and they said the body cam footage and the audio was more damaging against Derek Chauvin than anything else. When you get to be in the position of those men and hear the conversations of those men, that was overwhelming. And you can't tell me that, like, that's not indicative of a problem overall. Yeah, I can't imagine what those jurors had to go through, like watching everything unfold in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Yes. While everyone's staring at you. Oh, my gosh. When I watched that video, I was alone. Like, I ugh, I couldn't. One of the jobs that I had looked at right out of law school was to be one of the attorneys who reviews body cam footage. Like, that is the job. Like, you review it and, like, match it to the cases. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, no, I can't do that. That's a type of like emotional burnout that I'm not prepared for at this point in my life. But so, as I mentioned a moment ago, in regards to sentencing, Chauvin is seeking just probation for murdering a human. When I read that, my eyes couldn't roll more. Yeah, I sprained my eyes rolling them. On June 25th, Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years for the murder of George Floyd. So the next update we have is for Taryn Summer and Connie Ann Smith. Right now, the preliminary hearing has just been pushed again to July 16th. Not much going on in the case otherwise. So the last thing that we want to talk about for ongoing cases until we get to our Valo update at the end. Tim Miller, our favorite. We've talked about him many a times, particularly in our Texas Killing Fields Calder Road episode. His daughter had been murdered. He worked very hard to try to bring the responsible party to justice. And he also established Texas EquiSearch, which has helped in countless cases. I feel like whenever we're talking about a contemporary true crime case where someone is missing or where the victim's family needs an advocate, Texas EquiSearch is in the mix. Yeah. But so Tim Miller is in the hospital after having undergone a heart procedure. And we send him all of the love and good vibes in the world and hope and wish him the speediest of recoveries. Yeah. When I read that, my heart dropped. Thankfully, Texas EquiSearch posted on June 25th that Tim was discharged from the hospital. So the first new case that we're going to discuss is the murder of Joan D'Alessandro. So just to get started, what the news was, and to bring it back, A convicted rapist and murderer, Joseph McGowan, died in prison on June 5th of 2021. On April 17th, 1973, Joan D. Alessandro knocked on McGowan's door to bring him his Girl Scout cookies that he had ordered. Within a few minutes, McGowan had sexually assaulted and murdered Joan. As we mentioned, McGowan was convicted. Joan's mother, Rosemarie, said in response to his death, The first thought that came into my mind is now we could concentrate on the 50th anniversary of Joan's impactful and loving legacy, which will be 50 years in 2023. We won't have to use the time and energy to fight to keep him in prison. Yeah. And just as a note that he had been up for parole multiple times and she had fought very vigorously for him to not get paroled. Yeah. Jones family established something called Jones Joy, which is a nonprofit that focuses on child safety, which we see that a lot lately with all of these cases we've been talking about. And I love that the families are trying to make things better for other families. Yeah. Joan's mother worked to get Joan's law passed and was successful, although it did not apply to McGowan. And so what it was was a mandatory life in prison for the murder of children under 14 during a sex crime. It was enacted in New Jersey in 1997, and there was a federal version in 1998. Our episode that comes out next week is on the Girl Scout murders. 
And when we began our research on this in June, we saw an update and thought that this might have been the same case. And then as we researched, we're like, oh my goodness, there were multiple Girl Scout murders that have transpired. Yeah. And that's just sad. That's sad to think about because you should just be so safe in Girl Scouts. Yeah. Well, and also like, I mean, as a kid, I think my brother may have went with me on my cookie deliveries, but like I was certainly knocking on neighbors' doors like, here are your Thin Mints. Really? Yeah. That stresses me out. When I do um, any of my volunteer work for political stuff that I do, I will not go alone. Well, yeah. And that's now. Like, I can't even imagine a child. I was like, what'd it do? Interestingly, there was this very sweet older couple who invited us in. And my brother was like, they're old. They're safe. So like they were like in their 60s, probably. So like we went in, they gave us lunch. We watched TV with them. These were strangers. I do not know who they were. Like we just went into their house and hung out. My parents are going to listen to this and be like, what are you talking about? I'm so stressed out (laughs) on their behalf. (laughs) But I mean, it's true. It's true. Okay, so our next case that's new is about a Mexico City serial killer. And his name was Andreas Mendoza. He's 72 years old. And on June 12th of this year, investigators said they have found 3,787 bone fragments underneath concrete floors under various rooms of his home. Is that not an insane amount of bones? I don't like it. So because of the sheer number and size of them, he thinks that he hacked his victims into pieces. Ugh. They know that his most recent victim was sectioned and filleted. This just gets worse and worse and worse. It gets worse and worse and worse. It's going to keep getting worse. But like when you talk about how you cut meats as people, you know, I don't do cannibalism and it makes me feel really weird. I don't like it. It's like when we talked about that cult, our cult episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Anne Hill Kids. Yeah. And when she was talking. With the arm. About the arm. Yeah. And I had to, I think I had to get up and walk away for a little bit because I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. I can't. Yeah, it's a rough one. What gives me chills just to think about. If you uh, haven't listened to that episode and you're looking for perhaps our goriest of episodes, I think Anhill Kids is the ticket you're looking for. But so law enforcement is working to put the skeletal pieces back together to determine an exact number of victims. Right now, they're thinking it's around 17. So it's very interesting how he was caught. He was friends with the police commander named Bruno and his wife, Reina. Andres and Reina went on a shopping trip that day. And like they knew Andres, like he would come to their home for dinner and they knew him relatively well. And they kind of felt bad for him because he was like an older guy living alone. And so like sometimes like they invited him over kind of little bit out of like pity and kindness mixed together. So they had went shopping and her husband, Bruno, got a little worried because she didn't come home. And so police started investigating her disappearance in mid-May. And law enforcement had surveillance footage showing Reina going onto the street where Andreas lived, but not leaving. Interesting. So Bruno confronted Andreas and Andreas denied it and said, come in and look around. Like, very confident that Bruno wasn't going to find anything. So at first, Bruno didn't see anything amiss, but then he called Raina's cell phone. Oh gosh, it's like a movie. And he can hear it ringing, but it's beneath them. And so he's looking around and there's like, there's not like a big door, you know, like you think of a basement door, like what that would look like, but rather there's like a narrow entrance to what is described as a makeshift basement. And when he goes down, he sees Raina's dismembered body. In court, Andreas said, I removed the skin from her face because she was very pretty. I just can't. I've read about it and I've read these notes. And every time I still am like, Lindsay, stop describing a movie because this is too much. I could see the scene in my head play out. Yeah. And like, you know, he goes upstairs to use the restroom or something. And then he's like, well, I'll just call the phone real quick. I agree. I just can't imagine. This is too much. Yes. It's wild. So Andre's home is kind of cluttered and filled with junk, but police also found items belonging to victims, like identification cards, women's clothing, cell phones, jewelry, makeup. They also found notebooks and lists of names and videotapes. This isn't going to be good, right? They also found 91 photographs. The videotapes, there was two different types. There were 28 eight millimeter videotapes. And this type of videotape was discontinued in 2007. And then there were 25 VHS cassettes, which like after 2016, they kind of became harder to find. Like you can still get them. You have to like order them. You have to seek them out. Yeah, it's not like... 
as easy as it once was. So police plan to see if they are able to identify any of the victims using DNA. Andres had previously worked as a butcher and the amount of victims and just like the number, they think he's been working on this quite a few years. So this is purely speculation on my part, but if he had been working as a butcher and he had a source of meat, he may have sold people, right? Like if he had a butcher shop, he could have, uh, I don't like it. So under Mexican law, his full name cannot be released. And so he had rented out other rooms of his home. And so police are starting to search underneath those rooms as well to see if there's additional remains. Now, he originally confessed to some of the murders, but when he was confronted with these notebooks that had lists of names, he then started to act as though he could only remember five. Bruno's family hired an attorney who pressed law enforcement to investigate for accomplices because Andreas is 72. And like, it would have been difficult to lug a grown woman around at 72. Yeah. Especially like the exertion of dismemberment. But we're definitely going to keep giving updates on this one because horrific. It's awful. But also fascinating. And also like, could you imagine just like the gall of attacking like the police commander's wife? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That that one was an intense one. It's a wild ride. As I was going through it, and I was like, no, no, someone mixed this up. It's not news. I wish it wasn't. It's a script to a really terrifying movie. Nightmare? Yeah. So let's move on. But like she said, we will update as more comes. So in June, there was a body found in Maryland. I don't know if you're close to this, Lindsay. I'm not close to it, but I'm like an hour away. That's close in Arizona time. Yeah. So on June 16th, a red Nike shoe was found with a foot bone inside by hikers in a park that's about a mile from Camp David. And also, just in case you're not from the U.S., Camp David is a presidential like campsite retreat. Yes. So the rest of the skeleton was found about 60 yards away, and the FBI is assisting with the investigation. I can't even imagine hiking and being like, oh, there's a shoe. Oh, there's a shoe with a foot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't like to think about it. Do you have the fear, too, when you are, say, in the woods or hiking or doing something? Like if you come across any sort of bag, like duffel bag or anything left there, does your heart stop like mine does? Any evidence of human life in the woods is evidence in my mind. Mm-hmm. Same thing with when I'm driving. In my head, there has to be like an animal in it. Oh, yes. If there is a plastic garbage bag on the side of the road, it is a body in my mind. Until proven otherwise, there is a body. Mm-hmm. I also, you know what I really don't like? I don't like when I'm like walking someplace and there's one shoe. How? How does that happen? With nothing in it. One shoe. Where is that other shoe? Where did you, like, how did you, how did you lose just one shoe? We see it on a lot of our streets when we're driving. And I'm like, mm. every single time I'm like, why is there one shoe? Who got kidnapped? There's no other reason. Yeah. Like, I have so many questions that nobody can answer. Yeah. So per the FBI spokeswoman, whose name is Joy Giras, the age is unknown. And there's some suspicion because there's no missing person report or reports of vehicles that had been abandoned close by. The woman had braids and they were long and dark. She was wearing a black tracksuit. She had been found with a Puma handbag and a set of keys. On the key ring, there was one key. She also had keychains of a turtle, love with a heart, El Salvador, and a small spray item that looked like maybe it was pepper spray. And then as of today, which is June 23rd, the cause and time of death are still unknown. What I find just very, very unnerving about this, aside from generally a body being found and it not being clear who it is, is that like one, she had a purse, but no identification. That's odd. Two, because like if I'm going somewhere, if I'm bringing a purse, I'm also bringing ID. But anyway, I guess. But if she was going for a jog or something, I don't I don't know if I would. Yeah, I guess. And the key that's on the key ring, because there's pictures of it available. It's not a car key. It's like a. Yeah, it's a key. Key key. Normal lock key. (laughs) Yeah. And Hakiki. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that so we all have like all of these strange personal details about ourselves, right? Do you think that one of your close friends, like say you're at a party and there's keys on the counter and someone goes, oh my gosh, whose keys are these? Do you think that the people who you're really close to, you would be able to go, this is so-and-so's keys. This is Sask person's keys. This is this person's keys. I mean, it it depends on, yeah, the key rings. Like mine has a ghost stop keychain. Love it. So clearly it's mine. But I feel like all car keys always look the same now. 
So it might be hard, especially if like you drive the same make of car. Every person in my family whose keys I've seen, I could tell you whose each one's was. Like my dad, his keys are very like precise and in like an order where I don't know if he means to, but it looks like it's like in size order and it like looks like it's ordered so that it sits a certain way in his pocket. Okay. And Ben has a long UCF lanyard attached to his keys. And my brother has just like a ton of keys on his key ring. And like, I think it's like an older kind of like fabric strap. I could be making that last part up. My point is like, I feel like I could point to some keys and know whose they are. And the idea of, could you imagine just like scrolling through our Facebook feed, right? Because this is also being shared all over, like in Maryland a lot. Like a few people from people who I know who live in Maryland shared this. Yeah. And so the idea that you're scrolling through a Facebook feed and you see a key ring and keychains. Oh, and it's your friend who's been missing. Yeah. And, you know, like maybe maybe you went on that trip to El Salvador with her or maybe, you know, that like she likes turtles. Oh, that just it hits me in the stomach. It makes me feel queasy to think about. That's sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, as of today, no one's come forward yet. So let's see how it continues. Yeah, we'll also keep talking about that. As always, if, if we're covering it in True Crime Digest, you know we're going to keep covering it. So our next case is Molly Bish. And Molly Bish disappeared on June 27th of 2000. Her mother, Maggie, had dropped her off at the pool where she worked just a touch before 10 a.m. 20 minutes later, a family arrived with their children. So they saw her first aid kit was open and her backpack was sitting on a bench. She was a lifeguard, which is why she had a first aid kit. Her sandals were by her chair and her towel was laying across it. Now, her boss gets there about an hour later, and he doesn't see her. And he sees that her stuff is there, but she wasn't. And he knows her, and that that is weird. Yeah. That she wouldn't just leave. And especially, like, her shoes are there. Her important stuff, yeah. Yeah, it looks like she, like, left in the middle of something, right? When the police called her parents or her boss, I'm not quite sure which one it was, they were like, oh, yeah, this is weird, because she's not the sort of person who would just ditch her job. So Warren police, and this is Warren, Massachusetts, they originally thought that she had just ditched work and which is strange, but also not surprising because they love to say run away or your child's just irresponsible. But everyone was like, no, that's not her. So by that afternoon, they're like, "Okay, I guess we'll start to investigate. Later that afternoon, Massachusetts State Police take over the investigation. Maggie's mom said that the day before when she dropped Molly off, there was a guy who looked to be about 45 to 55 sitting in a white car and he had dark hair. She knew it was just Molly at work and there was nobody else there in the building. And she saw this guy just sitting there. So she waited like 20 minutes for him to leave or for other people to come because she wasn't going to leave her daughter there. That's scary. That's very, very scary. And real quick, we were talking, we, we posted on our social media this week. What has true crime done to you? What have you changed? Like, what do you do differently? And this is part of it. Knowing details of people or noticing people where maybe they're not always there. Yeah. So various other people in town recollected seeing this man in the white car drive around the area that day. But like nobody was able to say like, oh, it's this person. And law enforcement has never been able to definitively ID the car or the person in it. So she disappeared in 2000. In 2003, her remains were found. She was found five miles from where she was taken. And so there was a hunter and he was on a trail and he saw a bathing suit. And he was like, that's weird. When she was missing, they described the bathing suit she was wearing and that bathing suit matched what she was wearing. And so her bones were found in a thousand square foot area and it appears that she was buried in a shallow grave. So in 2012, the FBI joined the investigation and they offered the assistance of our fave, the Behavioral Analysis Unit, the BAU. There has been multiple suspects over the years, all of which have had a history of rape. So this month in June of 2021, investigators started looking into Francis, a.k.a. Frank P. Summer Sr. He died in 2016, but he before his death, he had been convicted of aggravated rape and kidnapping. Heather, Molly's sister, said that there had been someone in Sumner's family that gave them his name three years ago Ugh. and that they gave the, the tip to law enforcement immediately. So why they're just now looking into it? Strange. So District Attorney Joe Early said that Sumner has a record of over 20 pages and they're still looking for more information from the public about his employment, who he hung around with, vehicles and just any 
facts about his daily life to kind of like put them in the scene. So there's a sketch that exists of the man in the white car. And then there's a picture of um, Frank P. Sumner. And they are really, really close. And we can post this on our social media too. But like, they're very, very close. Yeah, I feel like he had probably just shaved in the actual picture. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that looks like the same man. It also looks like a younger photo of him. Yeah. Like that doesn't look like a 45 to 55 year old. But like the sketch does. Mm -hmm. It's a very good sketch. Well, and you know what hurts my heart is like since he did die like the family can only get so much closure yeah you know like they can't figure out every moment of that day there's no way of them knowing that makes me really sad yeah when when you can't get a confession you also can't get a hundred percent like unless you found like someone's journals or something like that right well in your mind that could be fake too yeah but I mean, I guess my thing is like, if police think they have their guy, they're going to stop looking. And what if like, they're like, yep, it's him, but it's not. Right. I don't like it. Me either. That's sad. So the other case, which is going to be a very interesting case that I feel like is going to be talked about a lot more in the future. Yeah, I also haven't heard anybody else talk about this case. No. Which is very interesting and also is a little exciting because if you'll, well, you'll find out, you'll find out. Yeah. So the cases of Lathan Dallas Webb, and he is 25 years old. In October of 2020, for a carjacking, he was charged with robbery, aggravated assault, which was three counts, attempting to elude a police officer in a motor vehicle, and he was deemed to not be mentally fit to proceed. I believe that there was a carjacking and a high-speed like police chase. There was a big to-do where like shots were fired at vehicles, an intense pursuit. Yeah. So since he was unfit mentally to proceed, he was committed to a facility. And in January of 2021, he just walked away. He left around 5 p.m. and just left the facility. On January 3rd, a no-bond arrest warrant was issued. Per Blackfoot Police Chief, he is still at large with no reported sightings, which leads us to believe he has left the area, possibly with assistance. There are still no reports of Webb being found. So there was also another person who has escaped from the same facility in August of 2020. However, their name has not been released, which is a little scary. You know, like if if they're there for a particular reason, you would think like be on the lookout would have been issued, right? Yeah. Yeah. On a Facebook post from the Blackfoot police about Lathan's warrant, there were a couple comments. And one is, can't blame the guy. That place is horrible. But hope he is found and gets the help that he needs. It makes me kind of sad that, you know, a lot of these facilities aren't the greatest. Yeah. I know it's not the same type of facility by any means, and I don't want to misdirect anything mentally at any particular one, but I have had loved ones in a facility for one reason or another, right? Mm -hmm. And when they come out, I've heard the same thing of, I did not care for my time there. Yes, it helped me with this, which thank you. You know, I'm glad that they were able to help with something, but they come out with other kind of traumas sometimes. And again, I know it's not the exact same. But it hurts my heart that when someone's admitted into a facility, they don't always get the care and treatment. Yeah, I mean, truly, whether you are in a facility because you were not deemed mentally fit to proceed or you're in a facility because you or a loved one has taken you there, you deserve and should get a good quality of care and should leave better. Because when you're in a medical facility, as long, you know, within reason, right? Like you assume that you will be better in some way after leaving. If it's a treatable-ish circumstance. Now, Amanda, why? I mean, like this is this is from January. Yeah. So why are we talking about this? Okay. So again, this comment that was made on Facebook, who knows if this person was there, right? If it is indeed this horrible facility. But the reason why this facility is so important right now is because both people were able to walk away, right? Or they escaped. Maybe there was help. Who knows? This might be and is likely the facility where Lori Vallow is currently being held. Is just wild because you would hope that anywhere that someone is being kept, you couldn't walk out of. But it's particularly disturbing when you're looking at a case where we all think that there's people who have not been arrested who are involved. Agreed. And I don't like it. No. Okay. So hold on to that information because we are going to start talking about Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell next. And we will discuss the reason why we believe she might be there. So in June, Rob Wood withdrew his contest of Judge Voice order stating that Lori is not competent to stand trial. 
So Lori has been taken to a facility in Idaho. So again, maybe that same hospital. Who knows? As a reminder, there are three pending cases against Lori and two against Chad. Lori has obstruction for failure to produce the children or tell police where they were. The second one is destruction for the destruction of evidence, which she has joined with Chad's destruction case. And three, the murder case. Both Lori and Chad have separate cases for this, and it involves murder charges and fraud charges in relation to insurance for Chad and social security payments for Lori. As we mentioned in our last update on Lori and Chad, which we talked about the murder charges, Judge Boyce ordered that Lori was not mentally fit to proceed in the destruction case. The obstruction and murder cases were also stayed. Okay, so let's get into the filings for June, which you know are my favorite to discuss. So we're going to start with the destruction case. So as Amanda mentioned before, Rob Wood withdrew his objection to the order deeming Lori not fit to proceed. So that hearing that had been scheduled was canceled. The 6-9 hearing for change of venue was vacated and will be rescheduled because of, obviously, because of Lori's competency. So there were also various orders discussing courtroom contact for when folks are back in the courtroom rather than just on Zoom. And as a note, June 9th also was the anniversary of when JJ and Tylee were found on Chad's property, which is just so heartbreaking and so sad. Like... I feel like when we talk about this case, it's just it's so important to like not lose sight of like JJ and Tylee. Yeah. And and Tammy and Tammy and Charles. Yeah. All of them. I I will never forget that day. Just watching it all unfold. And I was sitting at my kitchen table most of the day just in awe and disgust and yeah, depressed. All, All of the emotions were flowing through. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't really been following the case at that point. I came to it a little bit later, but I would imagine that it would have been emotionally exhausting. So Mark Means also filed a motion for contempt against Melanie Gibb for failing to respond to his lengthy discovery request Again, that's in our last Valo update. because It's too much. It was a lot. It was ridiculous. Surprise, surprise, she didn't respond to it. Judge Boyce also entered an order to unseal a July 2020 hearing for a specific use. And the specific use was for the hearing to be reviewed by the special prosecution that was appointed. Interesting. And we'll talk more about the destruction case when we talk about Lori's competency. So for the murder case, Chad's arraignment was scheduled for June 9th, poetic. At the arraignment, Chad pled not guilty to all charges. Now, his children were sitting behind him. And I saw a lot of people try to read a lot of meaning into this. And And, you know, I am really, really fortunate that I haven't lost a parent. I cannot imagine what it would feel like to lose one because the other one possibly murdered them. And just how complicated those feelings are. I'm not going to judge them for how they're handling this. I'm not in a position to do that. Yeah. So also, just to mention, there were three other people that we know were at the hearing. One being Natalie Pulowski, which was Ian Pulowski's ex-wife, who honestly did a lot I don't want to say at the beginning, but she did a lot to help figure some stuff out early on. Kay Woodcock was there. However, Larry wasn't there. So I hope he's feeling okay. Yeah. And then Colby Ryan, which was Tylee and JJ's older brother. He was also there. So East Idaho News filed a request to broadcast the proceedings. Pretty standard. So for Lori's murder case, Mark Means filed a discovery request for a production of items within two weeks, and it was pretty standard items. Lindsay Blake and Rob Wood filed a response stating that they would provide the requested discovery by July 15th. The petty Mark Means filed a motion to compel and for sanctions against the prosecution because it was longer than the two weeks that he had said in his discovery request. And he was frustrated because they didn't ask for an extension with either him or the court. So an interesting piece for his motion to compel was a footnote on page one. And so on the footnote, Means states that the prosecution has conducted press conferences stating that they're working on the case for over a year and told Ms. Summer Shiflett they were bringing murder charges back in October 2020. Did we know this before? Like, did we know that they said they were going to bring murder charges to any party? It's been a while, but I think they said that they were working on it. The prosecution also filed a discovery request, which included some interesting details they were asking about Laurie's alibi, including any corroborating evidence or witnesses, and a request that the defense notify the state within 14 days whether Laurie intends to raise any issue of mental condition 
and whether they are planning to call any expert witnesses for a mental condition at either the trial or another hearing. And so some of these other hearings could be bond reduction motions, because I believe she's still at $1 million for just the destruction case. Uh, motion to suppress, motions to dismiss, or motions in limine. So in Chad's murder case, as we mentioned, he pled not guilty at his arraignment on the 9th. The prosecution filed their same discovery response in Chad's case, and Pryor's response was not to ask for sanctions, but rather to ask for an extension of time to respond to 12B motions. And so just a little bit on what 12B motions are. So they're pre-trial motions. So basically any defense, objection, or request that can be determined without a trial of general issues may be raised before the trial by that motion. There's also some filings that have to be done as pre-trial motions. And that includes defenses and objections based on either defects in the prior proceedings in the prosecution or defects in the complaint, indictment, or information. So also motions to suppress evidence because it was illegally obtained, just also as a general note, if it's illegally obtained, anything that they got because of the illegally obtained evidence. Yeah, be used, right? Yeah, that's for the poisonous tree. So rule 16 discovery, which is just standard discovery, request for severance of charges or defendants. So charges that are tried separately so that the charges are tried separately or the defendants are. So if there was a motion for joinder, they could then ask to be severed. And then also a motion to dismiss based on former jeopardy, which basically means that the defendant has already been tried for the same charge and his trial. So then also with Chad's murder case, his scheduling conference was on June 23rd and his case has been set to start on November 8th and run five weeks through December 10th, which I'm very happy, but it feels very fast. Yeah. And I I also wonder how all of this is going to unfold, right? Yes. Because with what's happening with Lori, I know that those two are separate for the murder case, but still you're like, what's happening with each of them? I also, and this is again, pure conjecture, but I just feel like it's so much less likely that they're going to flip on one another if they're not being tried concurrently. Maybe. I don't know. I still believe that they're going to try to blame everything on Alex. Absolutely. Like he was the one that did, like physically did the horrible things, but they were like the puppet masters, you know? I think that's why they brought conspiracy charges. One way or another, they're going down. It's just, I want them to get the harshest of down that they can. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Lori's competency, as well as the insanity defense in Idaho. So a lot of what I've seen in like Facebook groups and stuff like that is people wondering like, oh my gosh, is she just going to get away with this because she wasn't deemed mentally fit to proceed? And the answer is no, she's not just going to get away with it. In Idaho, insanity is not a criminal defense. And so like per Idaho Code, Title 18, Chapter 2, Section 18207-1, mental condition shall not be a defense to any charge of criminal conduct. Doesn't that make you feel better? Like just reading it. It did. It felt soothing. Yeah. Yeah. Very soothing. And also remember in Arizona, she was checked over mentally, right? I know we keep bringing this up. That makes me so mad. But an actual mental facility talked with her, right? And they released her the same day. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of stuff transpired in between those two events, obviously, right? Most things did. I feel like the planning already had happened. Yeah. But if she was able to pass it then, come on. So on June 8th, Judge Boyce entered an order of commitment for Lori. And I'm not going to go over the entire order. We'll talk a little bit about the facility. So basically what that means is she was committed to a facility. It doesn't list which facility it is, but there was one piece of it that really did pique my attention. And it is Section 8 right? It's a two-page document. And Section 8 states, if defendant escapes from custody during his or her confinement, the director shall immediately notify the court, the prosecuting attorney, and the sheriff. That makes me nervous. I'm nervous about it. It makes me very nervous. And that was before we had discussed that, hey, maybe this is the same facility that two other individuals have escaped from. Like in the past year. Yeah, yeah. That was before I even knew that. And when I read this the first time, I was like, is this common to put on these? Yeah. Like, is it common for people to be able to just walk out of these facilities? I don't know. And then and then I think it was on TikTok or something, too, that I saw a video this month of someone leaving like a holding area. It looked like a courtroom. I Again, I didn't want to like look into it too much, but it was security footage of someone just walking out. Not in Idaho. But still, like, you know, this was in the back of my head. And then I'm seeing all of this come up. And then I'm reading about two people escaping a facility. And I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Okay. So with that, let's talk about State Hospital South. 
So I didn't see any source that said specifically where Laurie went. I saw a lot of people talking about State Hospital South who lived in Idaho, and they talked with a lot of certainty. And I was like, why are they so sure? So in that area of Idaho, at least when I visited, everyone knew people surrounding everything. So someone was like, yeah, um, I go to the gym with some of the people that work at the jail. So I'm wondering if maybe someone did leak it to the locals. Maybe. Again, that's pure speculation. I don't know for certain. But when I was there interviewing people, it just seemed like everyone knew someone somewhere within this case. And it could be as simple as like the person who drove the van, a person who filled out paperwork. It doesn't mean that there's a HIPAA violation. It just means that what and honestly, let's also talk about like the fact that it's pretty easy to figure out why she would be at State Hospital South. And here's why. So in Idaho, there are three state mental facilities, Northwest and South. Rexburg is just about as east as you can get in Idaho. If you look at a map, you'll see it's right on the eastern edge, like central south east edge. And so in terms of the closed facility, it would be Blackfoot, which is also known as State Hospital South. And it's 54 minutes from Rexburg. Now, State Hospital North is over eight hours from Rexburg. And West is 4.5 hours. So it stands to reason that they are going to have her at the closest facility, which is State Hospital South. Right. That makes that makes the most sense. And honestly, when I was there, too, I had to stay in Idaho Falls. There wasn't really much in Rexburg. And it did take a little bit of a drive to go to Rexburg. So I could only imagine, you know, being an hour away seems pretty plausible. Yeah. So I think your hypothesis would be correct only because when looking at a map, right? So there's Rexburg. And like I just mentioned, I had to stay in Idaho Falls because there wasn't really much there. I had to go down the highway to Idaho Falls and then right continuing down looks like it would be Blackfoot. So yeah, totally makes sense to me. And just again, to confirm, this is our speculation. No one has told us. We've just seen the rumors and then researched a bit more. Yeah. And geography suggests. (laughs) Yes. Very thoroughly. Indeed. So with that being said, for this facility, we looked up some of the rules. Yeah, we looked up rules and we looked up reviews from them. So we looked up some information about this particular facility, just in case that is where she indeed is. And there are visiting hours Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. Weekends and holidays are 10 to 6. Court committed patients over 18 have to pay their own bill. And from the the actual hospital website, they consider this contraband. Cigarettes, matches, lighters, alcohol items, personal items, weapons, medications, sharp objects, open drink containers, cans of any kind, any device that can take a photo, so phones included, homemade foods, anything glass or ceramic except for eyeglasses, and any liquid hygiene products. All personal items must be checked in by nursing. That feels pretty standard. It does. But I'll be interested to know, like, how are conversations regulated, right? Because in a prison system, like, if two people are just chatting who do not have privilege, one could overhear in a different way. And we'll get to that in a moment, too. So there are a lot of reviews about this place. So we picked a few of them that we just thought were very interesting to just talk about. One is from a child of a patient, and it starts off, my mother died in the hospital during her stay, and nobody seems to have any answers why. They gave her the wrong medications and ignored all of her medical problems. If you value the well-being of your loved ones, I would think twice before checking them into this place. I asked that my mom not be sent here after she got committed to the state, but it fell on deaf ears. This is not a place of healing. It's a cattle farm for the mentally ill. I cannot express in words the pain me and my family have gone through due to their negligence. My mother was a loving, caring, and compassionate person. She was a nurse that dedicated her life to caring for others, and these people ignored all of her cries for help. The staff of this facility ruined my family and my life. I hope this place gets closed down at some point. Rough. So rough. So, so rough. And I hear a lot of people say, like, she's faking this and da 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 da. And I am not saying that I don't, I don't really have an opinion either way on that. But like, these reviews are readily available. So, Means has to have read these. And we'll talk a little bit why it might really seem like he's read some of these reviews in a moment or two. Well, and again, reviews can be faked. I will say that. Yeah. But also, it seems like this is kind of a common thread. Who's who's like leaving fake reviews for a state hospital? Sometimes people surprise us with fake reviews. So the next one, the staff is too rude and do not understand the concept of help. The only thing they want is to have a lot of free time. 
And that's why they treat you quickly, but mediocrity. I think they mean a little different, but sure. It is not recommended if what they want is a useful service. Now, again, with reviews, think about it. Most people aren't going to leave good reviews. Like when you're happy with something, it's actually out of the norm for you to go in unless it's like phenomenal service, right? The only time I see good things is podcast reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast reviews. And then also like think of even like a restaurant. I'm not saying I'm comparing this to a restaurant, but just for review's sake. Yeah. Most people aren't going to be like, my burger was great today. They're going to be like, the service was slow. This happened. They were out of something. Like they complain a lot. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the good ones are being unnoticed or they're not they're not coming up because people aren't taking the time. I don't know. But I do want to throw that out there, that there are two sides to things. The next few are said to be done by psych RNs. Again, it's a review. You can't really like confirm or deny that that's what they are. But here's what they said from a psych RN. Run as fast as you can. Place sucks. When the supervisor asks the tech to leave the unit and buy him lunch and you are left on the unit by yourself, not good, not safe. Nurse managers don't want to be bothered and are part of the misery culture there. Nurses themselves are miserable and unhappy. Seems pretty clear how somebody could just walk out. Exactly. Yeah. Especially if they're not consistent on how many people are on duty at a specific time. Another one is, as an RN, I was left alone on the unit because the tech was asked to go to lunch for the supervisor. Unsafe. Pay sucks. Catty, nasty employees. So another one, again, from a registered psych RN. One time, a LPN pulled me into the bedroom to talk to me about missing medications, trying to pin it on me. I stood listen to her knowing that she had an addiction to painkillers and benzos. When she was done, I said, well, there's one way to figure out about the missing meds. Talk to the supervisors and have everyone take a drug test because I'm good. She starts stuttering and stammering, saying, but I have a prescription for it. Ha ha ha. The lowest of low work at State Hospital South. Woof. And again, this was all speculation. We don't know if she's there. And these could indeed be fake. But I mean, there is a trend. Yeah. So Means has a list of demands. And East Idaho News reported that Means filed a list of requests on behalf of Lori before she moved into the mental health facility. He alleges, quote, Lori's fragile mental state of incompetency as a direct result of the historical and systematic mental, emotional and physical abuse she suffered. What? Yeah, that's all I could say is what? Yeah, it's also and we'll talk about it more as you kind of go. But like what he asks for is so outside of the realm of a reasonable legal request. So weird. OK, so more requests. Means wants to know all information about Lori's treatment, facility transfer, and issues regarding competency. Means also wants to have private and confidential access to Lori during her stay at the facility for her treatment. Means said that he has received no funds from the county for his costs mainly for discovery. Means wants to be directly involved in Lori's treatment, which I feel like this is a little above what a typical mm -hmm. representative of someone would be doing, right? I have not seen any documentation that shows that he's her health advocate. But yeah, this seems like a little bit above and beyond for legal counsel to be doing this, right? Mm hmm. So he wants the names and credentials of everyone involved in her care, which I guess they asked for that at the jail as well. I want to say a while ago. I think the reason why he wants that is because he heard so many reports of like people at the jail saw this, people at the jail saw that. So he wants to have that list so that if they say people at the hospital saw this, people at the hospital saw that, he already knows like the universe of people it could be. Right. That's what that kind of seems like to me. So here's one that I'm just like, um, this might be a little much. So also he wants proposed treatments medications and plans before they are administered. What I don't understand is why don't you trust an actual, you know, professional to make the calls? That's what makes me think he read the reviews. Interesting. Because this seems like a person who does not believe they are going to give her adequate care. I mean, but she's there because of the decisions that they made. I know. it's, But it just it very much feels like he's micromanaging mm -hmm. them with like, what do you know, my guy? Yeah, indeed. Also, he wants to know that Lori be prohibited from speaking to anyone without his permission to prevent self-incrimination. <laughs> it is an excellent try. Like, you can certainly 
ask for it, Marky Mark, but it is not always ask and you shall receive, you know? How how does one how does one prevent that? Because literally anyone she speaks to, it's very easy for her to say something, especially if she is guilty. And again, I know that they're innocent until proven guilty, but I mean, how come on? My favorite of all of Rob Wood's responses is that he calls that particular request absurd. Yeah. Yeah. So Wood's response to all of these. The state is unaware of any legal, psychiatric, or medical authority that would allow the court, defense counsel, or the prosecutor, all of whom lack medical (laughs) degrees, to interfere with the daily (laughs) treatment of the defendant or dictate how any such treatment should proceed. Thank you, Wood. (laughs) You know, thank you. The adult. Yeah, he's like, means, come on, you're barely qualified to do what you're doing now. You're not a doctor. Yeah. Sorry, he probably is semi-qualified. But anyways, who could say? So defense counsel injecting himself into the daily treatment and work of the defendant by medical and psychiatric treatment providers is highly improper and not allowed under the law. Which, yeah, like, doesn't that, that has to somehow cross some medical no-nos, right? Like rules to be able to be like, yes, you're her defense. However, if she is indeed getting some sort of treatment, there are things that are going to come up that may not be even in relation to any of this, right? Yes. Yes. And also what he needs is a competent client. That is what he needs to work towards and do his attorney side of it. Yeah. I have never heard of defense counsel doing something so hand in hand in hand. It's very strange. But he always over asks. Like that's that seems to be like a, a recurring theme with Mark Means is that he like he doesn't have appropriate requests. He has like insane discovery requests, like the one he had with Melanie Gibb. He has this insane list of things. And I'm like, are you okay? Just like <laughs> are you okay? Are you okay? And also, um, sometimes I'm like, is he like... I feel like he's trying to find something to hold on to sometimes. Like, he's like, I don't know what to do, but maybe it'll come my way. It's, it feels like he's like, maybe they'll do one of these if I ask for 17. And now remember, months ago, he was like, Rob would keep CCing the court so that they know. And I don't like it. And like, okay, agreed. Like, don't CC the court on everything. It's fine. And he was like, you're trying to prove that you're not having Brady violations, like when nobody's even like suggesting that. And I'm like, well, you're suggesting it now. So like, okay. But also, it feels like he's like, you guys can't say I did this wrong if I'm overbearing. I imagine he has like the book in front of him and he's like, okay, things I can do. Okay, I will do all of them. That's not in a book. That's in no book. I'm just saying like, look, I've read some law books in my day. That's not in any book that I've read. Every college law book is out on one of those like book holders on his desk. That's a lot of books. Also, like, just so you know, that would be incredibly expensive. Oh, poor guy. I know he's not. This case is just, uh, it's above like everyone. This is just too much. And so he's asking for too much. Sometimes I'm just exhausted by Mark Means. I'm just like, there's so much I could say and I don't have enough time in the day to say it. You know what I mean? Like, he's all low-hanging fruit. You know what I mean? It's too easy. Okay, so let's move on to like a fully different uh, professional person who is highly competent and we have the utmost respect for, and that's Nate Eaton from Eastside O News. And can I just say real quick, his daughter that he keeps posting is the cutest little thing ever. I love it. She's like this cute little reporter girl. I love her. And her little glasses. But Nate Eaton, love him. Okay, so he posted this, asking for a friend, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Let's say you're a dedicated journalist who has been following a high-profile case. You legally stumble upon dozens and dozens of pages of fascinating new, parentheses, juicy, information in relation to the case. You spend hours reading every word and writing a story. As you're about finished, you learn the documents were supposed to be sealed by a judge, and they now are, and that publishing the story could jeopardize the case and witnesses. Or it might not. You never know. What do you do? Post the story or hold it back. And so we put that on Facebook. He got about uh, 1,300 comments. Yeah. And a lot of advice, most of which had the same theme. Do not jeopardize this case. Like, we're all going to find out what we're going to find out in due time. You don't need to jeopardize the case. Justice for J.J., Tylee, Charles, and 
Tammy is way more important than getting news fast. Also, can I say how proud I was of reading these comments? Because normally everyone's like, tell us everything. And I'm just like, guys, get it. We can't know everything because the jury pool. Yes. Like the jury pool already is going to be horrific, let alone if like he knows something that he shouldn't. Yes. But I was just so happy that everyone is finally like, okay, I don't care if we don't know. For the justice, it's more important. It made me happy. Yeah. And so Nate Eaton updated his post and put, thank you for all of your input. My friend has read your comments. I hope I didn't cause a stir with anything I wrote. Definitely not was not my intention. But hope you see that, that journalists wrestle with ethical issues every day. Some decisions can be harder to make than others. And I am not going to claim to be an expert on Nate Eaton's reporting history, but I'm pretty sure this is one of the biggest cases he's been covering. So I'd be really surprised if he wasn't talking about the Lloyd Valley and Chad Daybell case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just interesting all around. It was an interesting month for this case. On June 29th, the news came out that Lori was also indicted by a grand jury in Maricopa County, Arizona. She was charged with conspiracy to commit murder in the death of Charles Vallow on June 24th. Arizona will likely extradite after Idaho's cases finish, and we are thrilled to see that Charles is now getting justice. Also, according to Justin Lum, Gilbert police confirmed that the shooting investigation surrounding Brandon Boudreaux is still ongoing. So hopefully we'll also see something come of that in the future. After we recorded our episode, more information about the investigation into Charles's death was released. We will go through it in a future episode. Another thing that I've seen circulating where I was a little confused on is there is an article and it's actually been sent to me personally as well as I've seen it on a few of like the Lori Vallow discussion groups. And the name of the article is Indictment Hints at Possible New Charges for Lori Vallow, Niece. And really all it's talking about is the indictment and the indictment doesn't really hint towards Melanie Boudreaux being charged with anything. It also has a smattering of other case facts, like a quote from Brandon Boudreaux to a 911 operator. Like, it doesn't really make any sense as to why they're claiming this clickbaity title, which I find annoying. Well, yeah, it talks about Alex Cox attempting to shoot Tammy. And then it also talks about, like you said, Brandon's quote, it hit my window, shattered my driver's side window. And that's talking about when there was an attempted shooting on Brandon Boudreaux. Now, the only reason I could think of that is because there is, I want to say an interview with Melanie, and that's Melanie Laurie's niece, not Gib. Melanie Palowski is her new last name. And uh, I want to say she talks about how she definitely doesn't know anything about that and that Alex wasn't involved in that. So I'm wondering if maybe it's someone putting together that interview in their head with the indictment going, maybe she knew something. I'm not 100% sure. But in this article itself, it is a little clickbaity. Yeah, like it's a fast and loose title and I am annoyed by it. Do better. Do better. Well, we have gone through so much in this short period of time, I feel like. Yeah. If you're interested in any cases that we aren't covering in our True Crime Digest, let us know. Or if you're watching any amazing true crime shows, also let us know. Yeah. And again, if you want to support the show, our Patreon is available. You can head to truecreeps.com. We have our merch store on there. We have all kinds of fun stuff. And a special thank you to our Patreons, as always. Yes, we love you. And if you are enjoying the show, take a moment if you can and leave us a review on Apple iTunes or even on Facebook. And if you do leave us a review, feel free to screenshot it, send it our way, and we'll send you out a sticker. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thank you for listening to Cool Creep. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. <laughs>